You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And just like that, we were back yet another week upon us. How are you guys? It's been a little while. Well, really only like 48 hours if you listen to every show. But this is the Late Kick Extra podcast. There is no video version of this. One of the many benefits of subscribing to the podcast. Many of you have done that. You've left five-star reviews. And if you haven't already, go ahead, take two seconds and do it. It makes me happy. Don't you want to see someone smile or at least picture them smiling? We got a lot to get to today. I talk too much at the beginning. We waste too much time. I can't keep it under an hour. So here's what's up. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is 100% your show. It is mailbag format, whether it be the email inbox, Twitter DMs, YouTube comment section, podcast review section, which we get to momentarily because that's how we like to kick it off to incentivize. And you know how very rarely I use words with that many syllables, leaving questions in the podcast review section. So I'm very happy that you're with us. We've got a lot to get to this morning and we will waste no time doing it. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to do something that Tani, who is our podcast producer, technician, czar, he wears many hats. He tells me never to do this. He wants it all nice and regimented and formatted and he wants my thoughts well timed out and he wants everything dialed in and he doesn't want me to just go spontaneously through these questions. So what I'm going to do for this show is I'm going to go spontaneously through the questions and that's how we're going to answer them. First up, we got some really good stuff in here. UF Jack Fitz from the podcast review section. I figure we talk about this a lot. We have to address it about every few weeks because this is one of the most popular questions in all of sports. I've listened to your podcast after playing a bit of catch up I notice you often talk about the title or playoff contenders, but not much about the playoff itself. Many sports analysts and show hosts have weighed in on their opinion about the construct of the college football playoff and how it benefits or hinders the game as a whole. My question, do you think four teams is enough? Should we expand? If there's expansion, how many is too many? In regards to the Big 12, ACC, and Pac-12, with each conference really having one or two teams that regularly contend for postseason, if the playoff was expanded, do you think it would make a good criteria to include everyone or a team from every conference so it wouldn't be an SEC Big Ten Invitational? Now, I'm a Florida fan. I'm SEC biased, so I'm curious what your unbiased view is of college football's current postseason apparatus. Luckily, there aren't multiple, or of course, the plural would be apparati. That's me talking, not him. Uh, hey, did you hear that? UF Jack said, I am unbiased. I want the uh, fringe the fringe minority of our listenership to take notice of that, because that's not always what I see in the comment section. So my thought on this, Jack, and thank you for the question, is I think four is plenty. Mm-hmm. I am in the four and no more category. It's a movement. Our numbers seem to be dwindling by the day, but maybe... I don't know. We just said vocal minority. Maybe the vocal minority is out there backing us. Who knows? I am a believer in exclusivity. I'm a believer in value. And you expand, you decrease the value of a playoff spot. I also believe that I have not watched a college football season to date where I thought the teams that finished fifth or lower rightfully deserved a shot to play for a national championship. I believe the postseason format should be a reward for great teams or teams very close to great status. And I've never seen a season where we, honestly, I've never seen a season where we had four great teams. I've certainly never seen one where we had eight great teams. I am not a believer whatsoever in any kind of auto bid. People talk about us not having a true playoff right now. No, we got much more of a true playoff ironically, than one where you set it up with auto bids, which a lot of people suggest you have to have in order for it to be a true playoff. And I understand where they're coming from because they are married to the pro sports model of every division gets representation, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's different. That's because in pro sports, that model works. It's because talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity is evenly distributed. Resources are evenly distributed. Everything about the structure of the game is built to level the playing field. You get punished 
for your success in the NFL. You get a lower draft pick. In college football, that's not the way it is. And if you have a problem with the structure of the sport, by the way, that's what Sunday ball exists for. A lot of people don't watch college football because there are just a few powerhouse programs. And then if you're a Miami of Ohio fan, you know that in a million years, you're never competing with Ohio State. That's that's fine with me. I don't go on Sunday shows. I don't go on NFL shows and talk about how they should change that format. I never do that. So I'm not saying that everyone who wants playoff expansion is a pro football fan or whatever. I'm telling you, I wish that people could accept difference is okay. Nuance is okay. It's okay to have a radically different structure in this sport than there is in that sport because the structure of this sport at its very core is radically different than that sport. How, having said that, I was reading an editorial insert into one of the preview magazines this week, and it pointed out, rightfully so, it pointed out that just a few teams have been dominating in the college football playoff era, and only a few teams have had access to the playoff. Well, that's false. Only a few teams have made the playoff. Everyone's had access to it. And everything was accurate, technically, with what was being said. But then you get to, uh, as I said, the editorial portion of the insert, and it's, well, this is bad for the sport. Okay, that's still a reasonable opinion. Like, if you think a few teams dominating the sport isn't best in terms of health for the sport, I can buy that. But then the solution was playoff expansion. The solution, again, think this through to a logical conclusion. You'll find there isn't one. Expanding the playoff, putting more average to good teams in is going to upset this apple cart of the few dominant elite teams still winning. It doesn't upset anything. What it does is it provides some motivation later in the year. It may add a brighter spotlight on a few more games. I'm not an idiot. I know what this does. I know there is some increasing of value of some regular season games. It comes at the detriment of a lot of other regular season games, though. The spotlighters, you know, Ohio State and Michigan could play at the end of a year in that format, in that scenario. Alabama-Auburn could play at the end of the year, and they could actually be playing for seeding. You could have an SEC championship game where it's not winner-take-all and winner-go-to-the-playoff and loser-go-home. It could be winner gets a higher seed than the other, but hey, man, as long as we play a close game here, we're probably both going to the playoff. You could tell me that's only going to happen a few times, and I'm still telling you those few times would completely ruin, in a lot of ways, ruin the fabric of this sport. So no, in a long-winded answer, I'm not for any kind of expansion. I think the sport is healthy enough. And listen, here's what I'm counting on. This is why I'm rooting for Oregon so hard. There are a lot of excuses being made out there. A lot of people saying, well, this sport's unfairly tilted against us. And then you have someone like Mario Cristobal who says, hey, uh, screw it. I'm just going to build a winner at Oregon. And they got a little ways to go. But what I'm hoping is, I'm hoping Mario Cristobal builds something at Oregon that you can rub in everyone's face. And you can say, uh, well, he did it in Eugene, Oregon. What advantages do they have up there? Like, how close is the hottest geographical recruiting bed to Eugene, Oregon? What, I mean, what advantage does he have over even Southern Cal, much less Clemson or Alabama or Texas or anyone else like that. That's what I'm pulling for. Good question, though, to lead us off there. Next up is Lula Bear, frequent contributor to the show, by the way. LSU's defense before Ole Miss gets rightfully ridiculed, but I feel it didn't get the credit it deserved after Ole Miss and continued through the playoff. It seemed like during the post-A&M game, the defense was the best in the country, making Oklahoma look average and holding Trevor Lawrence to zero touchdowns. Thank you, Josh. I'm going to have to count on everyone's stats being correct, by the way. I'm recording this on the fly. Tani's not a big fan, but I'm recording this on the fly. I think you're absolutely right. If you'll go back, I'm not supposed to encourage you to do this because it's not under our umbrella anymore, but I did some independent videos on the old Late Kick channel, and I was talking about LSU all last year, obviously, as everyone else was. That was the point I started to make down the old stretch, as we like to say. I think one of the biggest hidden stories, because Joe Burrow was on his run and LSU's offense in general was rewriting the record books down there, 
one of the biggest hidden stories of LSU last year, one of the biggest reasons they were able to be so dominant, well, their defense got better. It's And it's very simple. It's very easy to explain. Uh, they had players that weren't on the field early in the year that came back. Like everyone points to that Vanderbilt game. And first off, not all of those Vanderbilt points were offensive in nature. But I mean, God forbid anyone actually look at something more than a box score. The Vanderbilt game was one where I can't even remember how many points Vanderbilt put up. But everyone just stuck on that. And it was sort of anecdotal. It was just this thing that people clung to that wanted to be holdouts on LSU saying, well, if they couldn't even hold Vandy under this, what's going to happen when they play? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The product is going to be radically different because they've got a radically different personnel package on the field by that point. It's funny. We only play one football game a week. This is not baseball where there's a game every night. You only play one game a week. How long does it really take to just do a little bit deeper dive on a team and realize, hey, they got four guys back on the field right now they didn't have early in the year? Could that mean that I'm improperly weighing statistics from early in the year when this is a different unit now? It's to me, that's not even critical thinking. That's not, that's just common sense. That's taking five minutes and looking at a lineup and saying, hey, where was this guy five weeks ago? Oh, he was hurt. What about that guy? Oh, he was hurt too. Okay. Well, he's back now, right? Yeah. So look at the Georgia game. Look at the Oklahoma game. Look at the Clemson game. And then take those defensive units and juxtapose them to earlier in the year, Texas, Vanderbilt and the like, Ole Miss, not even comparable. You're absolutely right. Not even comparable. Next up, this is Jordy555. What do you think it would take for the Big 12 to get over the hump of the first round being dominated in a loss? Do you think it's a talent thing? Is it a lack of competition through the year? I'm referring more to Oklahoma, obviously, but I wouldn't mind seeing a Big 12 team break that pattern. Well, I wouldn't either, Jordy. I think so far, and this is you know, the, the question is kind of asked in a broad nature. What does the Big 12 have to do? But you're right. You, you zoomed it in yourself. It's an Oklahoma deal. And it has a lot to do with who they've gone up against. You know, they haven't always been blown out in the first round. It's only three years ago that they were in overtime for a chance to go to the national championship game against Georgia in the Rose Bowl. So that wasn't a blowout. Now, the next year they play Alabama. I think that was the next year. They get down 28 nothing. And then, of course, I mean, they got splattered all over Atlanta by LSU. But, I mean, who are they going up against? Like, they're, they're playing the best of the best. Now, obviously, the Big 12, as it's currently structured, does not adequately prepare them for that. Not necessarily their fault. I also think that there was, and is still, a lot bigger defensive rebuild or just building project that had to be underway there than there was offensively. Now, that's obvious, but... Alex Grinch came in last year, for example, and they get, again, they just get run out of the building in Atlanta. I think a lot of people very unfairly look after one year of Alex Grinch essentially working with the ingredients that were already in the kitchen and say, well, I guess he's not the guy for the job. Like, what are you talking about? What? What? And look since then at how much he's overturned that defensive roster. You want to have a fun exercise. I think a lot of Oklahoma fans know this, but those of you outside Norman, there's a little transition going on there. I fully believe they're going to win a national championship under Lincoln Riley. The reason I believe it is because I think defensively, they're going to rise to the adequate level necessary to compete in these games. Look at what's happening to their roster. Go find, this is the activity I said would be fun. Go find their defensive roster from this time last year and look at it this time this year and find how many names that were there last year are still there this year. You've had transfers. You've had guys either wanting to leave or being strongly suggested to leave. You've had uh, new guys come in via recruiting. They are quickly, and I mean quickly, turning over the topsoil there defensively. But it, even at a powerhouse in the deep south, it takes time and you have more access to talent there. And you have a pedigree of playing defense. So imagine what Lincoln Riley is currently dealing with. Next up, Epic 847. Now, this one was fascinating. Let's say you take an average NFL quarterback, put him back in college. For example, Derek Carr. Carr is nothing special in the NFL. 
He wasn't drafted very high either, but I feel like if you put him back in college on a Power 5 team, he'd probably be the best quarterback in the country. With that being said, he'd probably get drafted in the top two or three picks and then be expected to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL and be capable of bringing that team to the playoffs. However, that's something Carr has never been able to do in the NFL for years now. Do you think he or any other quarterback would be a better pro if he played in college again, dominated, and came back with the expectation to be a very good quarterback? No, I don't think that'd be a different quarterback at all. I think all that changed or all that would change would be the expectation. Now, this is funny because a lot of people call a lot of quarterbacks busts into the NFL. You know, they all get drafted first round and they bust and you're considered a bust because you don't live up to first round draft hype. The quarterback position obviously is a different position than any other position in sport. And it's also a position that people draft scared for. And it's a position that people are willing to reach on. And it's a position of potential. And what I mean is, I think, pretty self-explanatory. General managers, half the time I'm convinced they draft a quarterback because they're scared to be the guy who didn't draft the quarterback. Secondly, you are inevitably drafting top half first round normally because your current quarterback situation is terrible. Thirdly, this is not in a vacuum. You have fans to appease and they're clamoring for a quarterback. And by that time, any quarterback worth a you-know-what has been hyped to the point where a mock draft somewhere has him in the first round. So if you pass on him, you passed on, quote-unquote, a first-round quarterback. And fourthly, it's desperation. You're willing to draft on potential at quarterback more than any other position. Any other position, I mean, you got to have some stuff that you know you can squeeze right away because you got a very finite shelf life. But at quarterback, hey, we're willing to invest and we're willing, because of the nature of the position and how important it is, we're willing to take a chance. And if Derek Carr came back to college, yeah, he'd be ultra successful. And yeah, if you could erase history and you could just have what you saw from him right now in college, yeah, he'd, he'd again get drafted in the first round. And he'd go on and he would be Derek Carr. That's who he'd be. Next up, Gunner955. Do you think Leonard Taylor, 2021 five-star defensive tackle out of Miami, has a chance to take the number one spot. In my opinion, I think he has a chance. Gunner, this is something that I think is very uncertain right now. Taylor's a great player. Just talking to Steve Wolfong about him yesterday, actually. He's a great player. I think a lot of guys are great players. I would say, and this is not something that I've had anyone tell me, like Barton Simmons hasn't told me this. This is just the kind of feel I get. I think the number one spot, not because of the nature of the players, but because of the nature of the year, is as up for grabs as it's ever been. Think about that. When you have one of the most important times in a transitioning junior to senior's life erased, and that being spring ball, and then you get a summer camp circuit, and that's what we're going, that's what we would be going through now, but we're not, you kind of hit pause on a lot of evaluation. You're still evaluating, mind you, but you don't have the normal body of work that you would have, new body of work to evaluate. So what could happen is we get into the fall and a lot of guys go into their senior season and you also tack on that, hey, high school kids tend to do something. They tend to grow. They tend to mature physically because they're in high school. So yeah, I think a lot of guys could be in the running for that. Leonard Taylor just being one of them. Next up is Lee Peters, 18. As a lifelong Georgia fan, I am very anxious about big games versus Alabama. Lately, those have been one in the same. It seems like under Kirby, we have shrunk the gap with Bama, but just can't close it completely. I don't see that changing on the road week three this season. Why do you think Nick Saban has such an outstanding record against his former assistants? How do you think Kirby can get it done against his former boss? Well, that's an easy question. Nick Saban has a track record that's very good against his former assistants because Nick Saban's better than all of his former assistants. That's why they were working for him instead of the other way around. Secondly, Nick Saban has a good track record against everyone. Doesn't just include his former assistants. And here's the funny part, and this is the reason I laugh anytime people talk Gus Malzahn hot seat. The only record that Saban, and he's still above 500 against Malzahn, but the only record that is not just completely shimmering 
with 90 plus percent success rate is his record against Gus Malzahn in Auburn. How about that, Gus? But what it takes to get it done, it doesn't take some miracle. You've been there. You've landed shots. Georgia has landed clean shots to the chin of Alabama a couple of times. They staggered them. They didn't knock them out. Bama had the knockout punch ready in their back pocket. But they've been there. Title game in 2017, SEC title game 2018. Georgia had leads in the second half in both of those games. So they're close. Recruiting's right there. They've been close. But the reason, the cumulative effect of very small measures, the cumulative effect of a day-to-day grind, that's where it tends to show up. All those hours you work, those extra support staffers you hire, that one more recruit, recruiting battle that you win, like that's the kind of stuff that shows up in one possession games. You're working so, so hard to give yourself the most microscopic of edges. That's the beauty. That's why I don't view this sport as being unhealthy, being top heavy at all. Because the value I get, the enjoyment I get out of watching one of those Georgia-Alabama late season battles is worth 50 battles between a number 10 seed and a number eight seed battling for the back half of a playoff spot or maybe seven or eight seed in an 18 tournament. You can keep that. You give me one of those Ohio State Clemson semifinal games, I'll take that. I'll watch those replays for 10 years. Second question. Seems like every year there's one G5 school that comes out of nowhere, gets ranked, causes a commotion, inevitably has their coach taken away by the Power Five where they continue to cause commotion. Think Tom Herman, Matt Rule, P.J. Fleck. Excluding Cincinnati with Luke Fickle, who do you think is the next G5 coach to make waves in the P5? Well, I'm going with the obvious here. I think the answer is Brian Harson. He is at Boise State right now, for those unfamiliar. He is on the very fast track, very fast track to getting one of these Power 5 jobs. So outside of Fickle, I think the answers, sometimes the, the obvious answers are the right ones. And I think the obvious answers here are indeed the right ones. Next up, UGH is back, ugh, is back in the podcast review section. Josh, as someone, oh, here we go. I'm not just making this up. You, you guys can go see these. These are public comments. His words, not mine. Josh, as someone with pretty unbiased takes, what is your opinion on Nick Saban and his lack of home and homes during his time in Tuscaloosa? Sure, they just scheduled Ohio State in 27 and 28, but I think he'll be retired by them. I can honestly admit that I'm a Bama hater, so I have my own thoughts and opinions on the matter, but I'd like to get yours. Well, my thoughts are Nick Saban has done with his schedule exactly what I would have done with mine. You remember a little while ago when he got there, hardly anyone was scheduling up in the SEC. Some of them did, but most of them didn't. Now, you had teams like Florida who already had the built-in series with FSU, Clemson and South Carolina, Georgia, Georgia Tech. So a lot of them didn't feel the need to. But also, keep in mind, the perception, which is reality, is that if you're in the SEC, you already play the toughest conference schedule in the country year in, year out. Why would you add to that difficulty when you're looking, this is the important part, when you're looking at the end of the year, and it seems like people are just being rewarded for going undefeated or having one loss, and people just value win-loss and they don't really value strength of schedule. This was in the BCS era. This was when human polls mattered. So he did exactly what I would do. He played it sort of safe, but then he also valued competition. And so he called up Clemson, and they set up that Chick-fil-A kickoff game in Atlanta. And I remember being at that game. It was in 08. Uh, And so they play there, and it was not the first neutral site game ever, but it started this recent wave of neutral site games every year. So I think they played Clemson and Virginia Tech back-to-back years there. They had a home-and-home with Penn State. That's when Paterno was still there. But pretty much every year, they've played their SEC schedule, and they played one marquee out-of-conference opponent, but they did it at a neutral site. And the reason was obvious to me. Nick Saban saw value in playing football games in Atlanta because he wanted to recruit Georgia. And he played football games in Dallas because he wanted to recruit Texas. And so... What do you want to do? Do you want to appease a sports writer more who says you need to play more home and homes? Or do you want to put your team in the best position to succeed and put yourself in the best position to recruit? Like, who are you 
more responsible to? Who, who do you answer to? So he's done exactly what I would do. He's accountable to, that's the word I was looking for, accountable. He is accountable to his players, to his administration, to himself, and to his fan base. And he handled it the exact right way to me. Next up is, pause, Specman03. How about a gambling podcast for the season? I started watching you for that reason. I have my own worksheet with power rankings, and I'd like to compare and hear others. Brad. Oh, you have a different name. Okay, well, your name is Brad. There you go, Brad P., if we want to get specific. Brad, all I can tell you there is stay tuned, brother. Stay tuned. Yes, I agree. It is very good content, and it will be delivered. Just stay tuned. Next up, Andrew in the podcast review section, Georgia Offense. You and 24-7 are my number one college football source. Thank you, sir. Question, with pretty much a guaranteed elite defense, how vital is it for Georgia to get over on their offense and get it in gear quickly? Also, last week, you didn't think you could leave an emoji in the podcast review section. Here you go. And he leaves two smiles and a thumbs up. So that's one mystery solved. Thank you, Andrew. Let's solve the other mystery. Yeah, it's vital. Uh, we also know that Georgia can afford a loss. They can afford a loss both in the context of the conference, and they can afford one loss in the context of the college football playoff. So they have week three, and I think it would be very foolish to think that Georgia in week three will be a finished product offensively. I also think it's foolish to believe Georgia will be the product in week three they are by the time they play Florida. So what I'm willing to say is a lot of people are going to render a verdict on Georgia's offense after week three. That's when they go to Alabama, by the way. I won't be in that camp. That'll be kind of the starting point for me with them. But they do have, exactly as you said, a pretty good defense this year. Could be the best in the country. I had to say that through a hiccup. Could be the best in the country. And that gives you a lot of space, gives you a lot of breathing room to try and work things out. That's one of the most intriguing things to me to watch anywhere in the country this season is the evolution of Georgia's offense and the evolution of the overall philosophy that Kirby Smart's going to play with. Next up, Tennessee Tar Heel podcast review section. What are your top three favorite office characters? Only one of them can be Michael, Dwight, Jim, or Pam. Well, that's an interesting requisite there. I'm going to go Dwight Schrute as my number one character overall entire series. And if you've seen The Office, you know exactly what I mean. I think that was a brilliantly played character. That is, that is some of the best writing, consistently the best writing that I've ever seen in television. Since you took all the other main ones away, my number two character would be Hank from Security. I always thought he should have been worked in a lot more heavily in the stories. I mean, when they're picking out the new chairs versus the copier, for example. That scene where he comes up there and deliberates, brilliant stuff. And number three, David Wallace. I think he's the CEO. David Wallace was really good. Here's a little fun fact before we move on. His name's Andy Buckley. That's the actor's name. There is a Reba McIntyre music video. I swear to you, I am bringing you this information off the cuff. There is a Reba McIntyre music video to the song, I'd Rather Ride Around With You. Go look up the music video. If you want your mind blown and you've seen The Office before, go watch this music video. I think it was recorded in 1894. Go watch the video on YouTube and check out the surprise cameo by Andy Buckley, who went on to play David Wallace in The Office. I've got some buddies who listen to this who are hardcore Office fans, and I will bet you every, let's see, one, two, three, six, all $17 sitting on my nightstand right now, I would bet all 17 of them that they don't know that. They didn't know that piece of trivia. I don't even think Andy Buckley remembers that. Next up. Joe in podcast review. This is good right here. Joe says, I can tell Josh goes to church because of the way he uses metaphors. It's very similar to how my preacher uses parables and metaphors. You are dead on the money, my friend. I grew up in the church. I say grew up. I mean, I'm there still. But that is exactly how I came about using metaphors as much as I do. It wasn't my idea. It was Jesus. And I always thought that was very effective. It's brilliant in its simplicity. Everyone understands metaphors. Don't overthink the room. If you ever want to relate to an audience or if you ever want to relate to someone that you're sitting at lunch with, just figure out the way to speak metaphorically. It's such a valuable tool that it's, I think it's undertaught in communication courses in college. 
if you go through a communication course, you learn about speaking publicly, you learn about the dynamics of communication, you learn about the 90-10 rule, but no one ever talks about metaphorical speaking, and it's very important. Anyway, Joe continues, Auburn is surrounded by great teams. When Alabama's up, we recruit Georgia. If Georgia's up, we recruit Florida. Louisiana, Texas, same. Right now, all of these states have strong teams. Yeah, you noticed that. I did too. I'm worried that if we have two bad years and fire Gus, we'll be unable to recruit these areas and float into irrelevancy like Tennessee or Miami. Is this a legitimate fear? Is this or this is the one thing that always has me saying we should keep Gus? You could not have summed up my thoughts on Auburn any better than I could. This is so accurate. There are no vacuums at the major outposts in the SEC right now. If Alabama was vulnerable and you were on the fence about Malzahn, okay, because you would have an opportunity to strike. Same with Georgia, or maybe if a combination of the state of Florida and Louisiana and Texas were in flux and you saw this vacuum of recruiting territory that you could go take full advantage of and your coach was average, go ahead and make a move. Because not only then would you have an opportunity to radically improve your program, but you'd also probably have other candidates that wanted your job because they would see that, that advantage potentially too. Right now, everyone's good. Right now, every recruiting hotbed, as you mentioned, that Auburn has ever flourished in is filled. Doesn't mean they can't recruit there. But if you're recruiting top 10 right now, as Auburn is, if you're recruiting at a top 10 caliber, even a top 15 caliber, with the current state of affairs in the SEC, it is a great success story. A great success story. And if you're hanging in there and you're in the conversation, as Auburn is most every year, it is a great success story. Gus Malzahn, I want to say this slowly because some people think I misspeak when I say this. Gus Malzahn, within the context of power five coaches at top 15, top 20 places, is the most underrated coach in America. He is not winning national championships, but think about what he's doing relative to the competition around him and relative to what history says Auburn should be right now. What does history say Auburn should be when Alabama is on an unprecedented run? Alabama's in the middle of a dynasty. This happened before, folks. We don't have to do it hypothetically. What does history say Auburn should be? What, they shouldn't be beating Bama every other year. That's not what history says. They shouldn't be able to recruit top 10. That's not what history says. And does history even give us guidance on what they should be if we've got a Bama dynasty plus a Georgia team on the precipice of national championships, an LSU team that just won a national championship? What does it say? What does history say? History says Auburn should be a bug on a windshield right now. And they're not. They're very competitive. And you find, I just want you to find me Anyone who pushes for the Malzahn hot seat talk, not only do you have to find me someone who can match what he's done, you got to find me someone who can improve on what he's done. Good luck. Next up, Kyle F, 98. Hey, Josh, can you describe your perfect conference realignment? Which schools do you want to see moved around to find a better geographic competitive or rivalry focused fit? I'm a Big 12 fan. I'd like to see Arkansas, Nebraska, and Arizona join the conference. Hey, those aren't bad ideas. I really wish West Virginia was in the ACC. I wish Nebraska was in the Big 12 still. Um, as for the rest, you know, it depends on how the cards fall. How many conferences are we going to have? If we go from five to four and everyone extends to a 14 or 16 team structure, then I got a lot more movement to do. If we keep the classical you know, five power conference set up right now. Um, I'd have to think on that. that. That actually sounds like a late kick live segment. And so let me think on that a little while. Here is our three NC podcast review section. How does Clemson's recent dominance of the ACC compare to Florida state in the nineties and early two thousands? How easily can other squads catch Clemson? Uh, it's not going to be easy. That much is for sure. As for the nineties and two thousands, there's a lot more longevity, obviously, with what Florida State did. And there's a lot of value in that. You know, if let's say that I finish in the top 10 every year for 15 years, and let's say I won two national championships. And let's say you won two championships back to back. 
who's had a more impressive run? I mean, let's say you won three championships back to back to back. And I had a 15 year run where I finished top 10 every year and I won two championships. What's more impressive? I'd say the 15 year runs more impressive, even though I had one fewer championships than you. And the simple reasoning is it's hard to stay on top. It's hard to maintain success anywhere over a long period of time, much less if the currency that you're working with is 18 to 22 year old kids, a lot of whom come in and think the spear on the helmet's going to win. I don't really have to do a whole heck of a lot. So that's no knock on Clemson. Obviously, they haven't had an opportunity to extend this, and there's no reason to think that they won't. But as for now, I think the default setting is you got to say Florida State's is more impressive. And by the way, the stats I just gave out, those weren't exactly to scale. Those were hypothetical. We're now talking about Clemson and um, Florida State. But Clemson is well on their way, and there is currently nothing standing in their way in the ACC to dominating as long as they want to. Let's see, Igor in the podcast review section. When can Oregon be on the same level as Ohio State, Clemson, and Bama? When they, well, Pac-12, you got to completely own that conference. You have to make the playoff and do something in the playoff. You have to continue to recruit very well. And most importantly, offensively, there are several rungs up the ladder they have to climb. Quarterback position, there are several rungs up that ladder they have to climb. They've got it to do. Think they're capable, but they've got that to do. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, we continue on here. Let's go with NCND82, who for some reason left us a three-star review, but left a great question. Hopefully, if I give a great answer, they will realize that oversight. I've thought the same idea since the playoffs started, says NCND82. Go back to the old format, pre-BCS, select the college football playoff after that. Adds more importance to the New Year's Six and would be a win-win in my opinion. Example, Big Ten Pac-12 champion from the Rose Bowl. Orange pits the ACC champion versus at-large. Sugar Bowl is SEC champ versus at-large. Cotton Bowl, Big 12 champ at-large. The remaining teams consist of top 10 to 12. How would you feel about this format? How would you personally change the field? I wouldn't mind that at all. I've always thought that probably the best marriage of concepts is to find a way to incorporate the current bowl structure and then select a playoff field after that. However, from a calendar standpoint, from a timing standpoint, if you're married to having your national championship game the same time it always is, I don't know how you would pull that off, but you know that a lot of people get paid a lot of money to figure that out. I wouldn't mind that at all, though. That's not something I'm against. Uh, let's go next up. The current conversation about allowing fans in stadiums has been about how many fans can come in, but there hasn't been a conversation about fans not wanting to buy tickets. Doesn't that tell us most college football fans are not afraid of this virus and should be able to attend if they're comfortable? Certainly, if you feel unsafe, stay home or sell your tickets. But how do you feel about fans being able to decide what they want to do? Well, in theory, I'm for pretty much any human being being free to decide what they want to do. You got two things to worry about here. Number one is greater public health risk. And number two, and this is the bigger word that probably makes all other words irrelevant, and that is the word liability. And if you've ever been culpable, if you've ever taken on a liability, you understand it's not a play toy. It's not anything to joke around about. And so anyone running, for example, 
stadium operations, anyone allowing fans on campus or into a stadium, it doesn't matter what they say they're okay with. If something goes terrible on your watch, you may be liable for it. And that means a whole lot of money. In an already, as it figures to be this year, cash-strapped time, you don't want to be liable for anything else. So for that reason, I don't believe that's the, I don't believe that will be the overall thinking. Next up, uh, this is S. Hookham, 28. Your last podcast, you talked about Miami and the fans being stuck in the past. Do you believe Texas fans are the same way? I'm tired of hearing the question, is Texas back? Because no one knows yet. And I feel this may be the best chance they've had since the late 2000s. One more question. Is Texas bought in and is Tom Herman the answer? Well, Texas is bought in from a passion standpoint. I hope they're bought in from the standpoint of understanding when it's best to take your hands off the wheel and let the people who know what they're doing drive the bus. I hope they're bought in to that degree. Is Tom Herman the right guy? I have no clue. I am not sold on him yet, to be bluntly honest with you. Could be, but I'm not right now. I don't tend to think many Texas fans are either. You, you believe in your guy. I'm not saying that, but if, if anyone asked you today, you had to bet 50% of your life savings on whether he's going to be there five years from now. Are a lot of you confident in that? I don't, I don't get the sense that you are. So it's just a remains to be seen with Tom Herman. As for Texas, yeah, I think in some cases you're right about that. Here's what I don't know. I like, I don't live in Texas. I'm not around Texas fans day to day. I know that nationally, the question that always moves the needle the question that works good in search engine optimization, SEO, like if I'm formatting a headline right now to give you a little inside baseball, if I'm, if I'm doing a Texas article, let's say I'm writing an article about Texas and I get told by my boss, hey, if you don't write an article about Texas that, that gets X number of page views today, you're going to be fired. I'm not saying this happens. I'm saying if this hypothetical were to play out. And I had one opportunity to write an article that got clicks about Texas. You know what I'd put in the headline. It's going to be some variation or some version of, of is Texas back? Okay, that's why we see that so much. Is Texas back? That's just like Miami and swagger. You put Miami and swagger in the same headline, it's going to get a lot of clicks. So a lot of people get lazy and that's all that they fall back on. And that gets turned into the national narrative. And all of a sudden, if you live in Tacoma, Washington, or you live in Silver Spring, Maryland, shout out, Tani, and you don't live around Texas, you think that all anyone talks about with Texas is, are they back? Are they back? Well, I've never sat at a watering hole in San Angelo, Texas, and listened to how Texas folks talk about Texas, lately at least. And so I don't I get the sense you guys don't sit around and say, are we back? Is Texas back? I don't get the sense that you do that. I get the sense that you're probably talking about the track record of Chris Ash and how different things will look this year from a philosophical standpoint than they were last year. And are you healthy this year? I get the sense that on the ground, the talk is a lot different. In fact, I know it's a lot different. Next up, lame lowball 11. I don't question the screen names, especially when you guys submit questions virtually every week. What stadiums do you think have the most scenic venues, including the view outside the stadium and the stadium itself? I personally think it's Brigham Young with the mountains surrounding Lavelle Edwards Stadium, but that's in my incredibly biased opinion. Well, I think you may be right about Brigham Young. Anytime I've watched a BYU game, the reason I say Brigham Young, let me pause and give you full disclosure. If you grew up in West Central Georgia, it is hopeless trying to pronounce BYU without sounding like you're from West Central Georgia. BYU, BYU. I can't rap the Y. I can't do it. Why? BYU. Can't do it. It seems very unnatural. It's like running backwards. Can't do it. And so Brigham Young, it is. Brigham Young is, of course, very scenic. But see, I've never been there. I've seen the pictures on TV and they are very pretty. A lot of the West Coast venues I haven't been to. Now, the Rose Bowl I have been to, and that one's right up there. That one, first time I went to the Rose Bowl was for a national championship game. And that place was like a screensaver to me. Looked incredible. We got a, it was a great setting. You got the sunset that you wanted. Um, the marine layer hadn't snuck in or anything like that. So it was great. But I have not been to a lot of those West Coast venues which obviously would just litter a top 10 of most scenic anything. And so 
until I get to go out West more often, I don't think I can really in good faith finish that list. All right, YouTube comment section. This is from Greg, who I think may have misunderstood me on our previous show. Greg says, so you think if Auburn loses to North Carolina, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama, Gus isn't going to be on the hot seat? Oh, I never said that. Someone asked me the other night about hot seat, and I did a segment on coaches that were and weren't on the hot seat, perceptionally, and I said Malzahn's not on it. Well, that's now. I mean, if we fast forward a year, anything could happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming if he goes eight and four, things wouldn't be very comfortable for him, but he hasn't gone eight and four. And chances are they're not going to lose all four of those games. We'll see, but chances are they're not going to lose all four. So, Greg, we will revisit this in December. Isaac, if the 2020 season is completely canceled, how do you anticipate it will impact rosters? Will fewer players be drafted? Will scholarship limits be increased? Is eligibility extended? Isaac, we've had calls here internally this week about that. It's a whole lot of I don't know. And that's not a runaround. People in decision-making positions don't know. It's one of those disaster scenarios that a lot of people just haven't, uh, they haven't summoned the courage to even broach those topics yet in a lot of cases. No, they just, it's one of the break glass in case sort of scenarios and no one wants to even structure what's under the glass. They don't even want to figure it out. So hopefully we never have to. Chris, YouTube. I'd like to hear your take. Oh, actually, we already got to that one. Thank you, Chris. Jared on YouTube. You joke about people not asking questions about teams like Nebraska, so I got a Nebraska question. Good for you, Jared, because I had another person, two of them actually, pop in the comment section this week and accuse us of talking too much about the top teams. As I tell you guys, and I continue to tell you, it is your show. It is not my show. I have not written a single one of these questions. It's all you. If you want to talk Nebraska, or if you want to talk any team, submit a question about that team, as Jared did. What kind of year do you think Adrian Martinez will have this year? That's the quarterback at Nebraska. He's excited many people the second half of his freshman year, but left many wanting more in his sophomore campaign. Now, obviously, that was due to injury. If you guys didn't watch Nebraska, his freshman year, which coincided with Scott Frost's first year, there was a lot of optimism. And then last year, it was sort of erased. Any opportunity was erased with injury. And so it was a very subpar 2019. 2020, in turn, leads to not many people expecting much from them, but they've got a lot of pieces back. Now, how valuable those pieces are, how far you can go with those pieces remains to be seen. How good you are at quarterback now remains to be seen. But I'll tell you, if you wanted a real, real dark horse team, if you wanted a team that no one's going to pick, in their top 15. But if you wanted a team that has an opportunity to be there mid-season, take a long look at Nebraska. If Nebraska is healthy at quarterback, and if things start to just click, there starts to just be synergy within that program, simply because the staff's been there three years now, a critical mass of the staff. I know we got some new coordinator pieces there, but look at that in combination with Nebraska's schedule. Nebraska's schedule is extremely back-heavy. So, I don't think they're going on a run to a playoff or anything like that, but it could be that that's the team that wins a lot of close games early and they get to the midpoint of the season. And all of a sudden everyone's looking around saying, how in the world's Nebraska ranked 14th? Where did this come from? Just take a look at Nebraska. G-Town, 1983 on YouTube. What's the most vicious hit you've ever seen in person? This was to me the 2016 season. It was Texas A&M at Alabama. A lot of these questions, like when people ask, what's the best blank that you've ever seen in person? A lot of my answers are Alabama, and it makes it sound like I have like crimson tide cheek stickers on my eye black right now. I guess they would be called eye black stickers. I always used real eye black. I didn't believe in the stickers. Well, my answers are all Alabama, not because of that, but because in the time I've been covering college football, my job was to be at the biggest game every week in the South, especially, and it's always an Alabama game. So all my experience is Alabama or someone playing Alabama pretty much. And in turn, my answer to this question is 2016, it was A&M at Alabama. Speedy Noyle was the returner, kickoff returner for Texas A&M. Mac Wilson, who was a five-star linebacker, was a true freshman. And he hit Speedy Noyle so hard 
on a kickoff return that it sent off a concussion like you would feel off a shotgun blast. It sent off a concussion. I was probably standing about 15 yards away, maybe 20 yards away. It's one of the only times in a packed stadium. It's one of the only times I've ever felt the concussion off a hit. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand how sound waves and all that stuff work. I don't get how that happens, but I know I felt it. And so Speedy Noel, I went back and watched the replay on TV. I think it bent his face mask inward. It looked like his face mask actually flexed. It, it, this is, you can YouTube probably Mac Wilson's Speedy Noel hit. Uh, it's the only one that's going to pop up. But to his credit, he got, he got up and he went to the sideline. Now he was down on the sideline because I stood there and watched him, but the TV cameras didn't catch that. So good for Speedy Noel because a lot of men have stayed down on hits not nearly as vicious as that one. Jeffrey, do you see NFL helmets with the built-in mask to help protect the athletes from COVID? Have you seen those mock-ups? And if so, do you think the NCAA will model those helmets? They may. To me, it's all pointless. Like, they may. I was reading an article yesterday about measures that could be taken in games. And some of this stuff is so ridiculous to me. It's not ridiculous to want to be safe. It's not ridiculous to want to stop the spread of a disease. We're not playing ultimate Frisbee, guys. We're playing football here. You are touching someone. You are on, you're in piles. You're standing next to someone. You are handing an object that was just in your hands to someone else to hold in their hands. And we're talking about taking measures like putting masks in helmets. Another measure I saw is requiring players to put on a mask on a sideline as soon as they take their helmet off and space themselves out on the sideline. Like, what is this accomplishing? You talk about rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic. If you feel the sport is not safe enough to play, you just don't play it. How are you about to play something? If, if it's from a liability standpoint, and then I get it, that's, that's got to be all that's in play, or maybe perception. Because making football a safe sport to play from an infectious disease standpoint, you either play it or you don't. I don't care what the helmet looks like. But having said that, yeah, I could see it, Jeffrey. Monstro Town on YouTube. What steps does Bo Nix need to take to improve? That's the quarterback at Auburn. I think he might need to show more mobility with the departure of most of his offensive line. Yeah, I, I could agree with you, MT, but I think consistency, and that's in all facets of his game, is what needs to improve. He's shown flashes. I mean, I was at their state championship game against um, – who did they play? I can't even remember who they played now. But I watched him in the state championship game when he was in Alabama, and, man – stud. I was sold on him that day. And then I watched him in Auburn's spring game as a true freshman. Everyone was Joey Gatewood, Joey Gatewood. I said, that kid's the one that's going to start. And sure enough, he ends up starting. Now he was inconsistent as a lot of true freshmen are. Got to have a quicker release, better pocket awareness. Think about the Florida game. If those of you who are listening remember the Auburn Florida game last year, it was rough. Uh, accuracy has been an issue. That's not all on him. Um, but as you said, they lose a lot of pieces in the offensive line. They get a new piece at offensive coordinator with Chad Morris. And that's the hope that a lot of people have there is their passing game will be elevated to a different level than it's ever been under Malzahn. And that's what I wait to see. Will on YouTube, who's your number one quarterback this decade? What are you basing it off of? All-time great one-season results like Burrow and Cam or multiple great seasons like Mariota or Mayfield? Um. I'll probably lean towards the one year. Like, I want to know what were you at your best. So Joe Burrow is there. Cam's there. Tua Tungavailoa is one of the best I've ever seen. At his best, sadly, we didn't get to see him at his best enough. Uh, but at his best, I, in fact, at his best, I don't think I saw a quarterback in person better than Tua. And I saw Lawrence. I saw all these guys in person. We didn't get to see him at his best enough. Uh, but Joe Burrow, yeah, man, my answer, all things considered, probably is Joe Burrow here. Intangibles, intangibles, intangibles. So incredible to watch that guy, especially considering I had just watched him the season before get shut out at home versus Alabama. Incredible transformation. Lee on Twitter. Uh, actually, we already got to that one too, Lee. See, this is what happens. You record on the fly. Toddy, don't edit that out. You get the mistakes. You get everything. Lee on Twitter. It seems... <laughs> I just read two questions back to back. Tony, you know what? You can edit that out if you want to. But 
I leave it up to your discretion. All right, David, I know we haven't asked this question. David on Twitter, you've talked on your show about how LSU has surpassed Alabama in sports technology. Uh, to preface, I said they passed them recently in the field of sports science and technology. Yes. Continuing. You've also talked about how Nick Saban himself has admitted they had grown stagnant in that part of their program. Scott Cochran was with them for 13 years. He was the only guy that stuck with Saban in that rotating door of coaches, even if their parting ways was based on an effort to improve their conditioning and strengthening program, you lose a part of your locker room and a big part of Saban and Alabama's philosophy. Let me pause there. Now remember, Scott Cochran chose to leave there. He didn't get fired. He didn't get pushed out the door. He chose to leave. Having said that, I can tell you, whereas it was a huge headline nationally, internally, people at Alabama weren't all that upset. Not because he's a bad person, but because they knew change was needed. And they were going to, I've talked to Nick Saban himself about this a month and a half ago. I mean, he sat there and he flatly said, whether, whether Scott Cochran left or not, we were changing things. We were going in a different direction. And now if he was here or not, we were going in a different direction. So just remember, let's properly contextualize all this. All right, we continue. We're talking about a guy who smashed their second place trophy from the 2017 season. Also, if they're trying to implement a program more advanced than Cochran's, won't it take a few seasons to get back to the top, especially during a pandemic? No, David, I don't believe it will at all. I don't believe, I believe they're more advanced now, today, than they were under Cochran. I fully believe that. That's not me experiencing the program. That's me talking to people there. I, I'm, I'm very careful here because this is not meant as disrespect to Scott Cochran. Cochran was a godsend for them at one point. And he, they set the standard for what strength and conditioning was in the modern age of college football. The only difference between that aspect of the Alabama program and their defense, for instance, is their defense continued to evolve. After, after Nick Marshall and Johnny Menzel made them look foolish, they evolved defensively. Their strength and conditioning never evolved. It was the same in 2020 as it was in 2010. That's a problem. And so they had to change it, and they have. And a lot of the sports technology and sports science aspects they brought in, speed training, it's already night and day different. They haven't even opened camp. And people in Tuscaloosa, to a man, rave about the jumps that they've made. It's almost like having ridden a tricycle and then someone gives you a bike. Like that trike was great for a long time, but then you realize, this is what a bike feels like? Wow. So uh, no, David, I don't think so at all. If you didn't have the athletes, that's what would take a long time. They've got the athletes. Matthew on Twitter. How did Chris Peterson make Boise State become a powerhouse and compete with the big boys? What are Memphis, Cincinnati, and UCF doing right now that set them apart from Houston and SMU and East Carolina? Obviously, schools like Boise can't recruit at a high level, so I was just wondering what they did to compete and win at a high level. Well, it's just that. It's the last things you said. What it takes to compete and win at a high level. All the boring stuff you know, like a razor sharp focus on process over results, having a process oriented mentality, grinding day to day, having incremental improvements day to day over a broad spectrum of different facets of your program. Again, like I said, all the boring stuff, it's not headline grabby, but when you do those things consistently, you find that not a whole lot of people can execute that. So just as a result of doing the basic things consistently, effectively, you end up having incremental improvements over your competition and they add up. And all of a sudden you're beating someone 63 to 20. And you're saying, wow, they have the same amount of money to spend on coaching staff as we do. They have the same amount of scholarships we do. Why are we so much better? Well, it's not that on any one given day, you're that much better. It's that you were just a little bit better every day and it added up to that. That's what Chris Peterson did at Boise and he did it at a disadvantage. He was in a conference, for example, with Fresno State. Where do you think it's easier to recruit? Boise, Idaho, or Fresno, California? And yet he overcame a lot of that. So I was so impressed with Chris Peterson. Jonathan on Twitter. I don't think that Herman and Texas recruit well nationally. Can Texas win only recruiting the state of Texas like they have been? Or do we need to branch out to compete with the Clemsons and Alabamas of the world? 
interesting conversation to be had here. There's always this talk about Texas players. There's always this talk about are they more maxed out on average than players from other region. But I don't even think it's about that so much. I think it's just about this. Texas is not a national recruiting brand because they've never had to be. And they've never had to be for obvious reasons. The state's loaded. And so, you know, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Clemson has to leave the state of South Carolina because they don't have 42 four-star or higher rated players in the Palmetto State every year. Same for Alabama. Texas does. And so what kind of athlete do you want? And what kind of athlete do you think you have in your backyard? Like, do you think you have enough offensive and defensive linemen in the state of Texas? Is it mainly a perimeter skill state? Like, what is it pumping out? And so I always think it's advantageous to extend your brand. Knowing that in any given cycle, maybe you don't have to go into the tidewater of Virginia. Maybe you don't have to go into Southern California, but just know that you can. Now, it's, it's obvious why they haven't. But yeah, I think it's important to know that you can. Chris on Twitter, Ohio State every year is mentioned as one of the big dogs year in, year out, but they've only won two titles in, since 2000. With the way they recruit every year and the development evident by the NFL draft every year, have they underachieved? I get that winning a title is hard, but from all the guys they recruit and all the guys they send to the NFL, only two in 20 years, I paraphrased a little bit there, Here is the way I would answer this, Chris. If you took one team out of the sport, remove Alabama. Let's pretend Alabama went eight and four every year over the past decade and a half. How differently would you view Ohio State's two titles in 20 years? You would think it's pretty good. You think it's right on par with what you would expect because you would still remember it's extremely hard to win a championship. Extremely hard. It's just that someone came along and made it look too easy. Alabama has made it look too easy. Alabama's won five of them under Nick Saban in 13 years. I think that's how long he's been there. And it's not that easy. So it's like talking about the Braves in the World Series. Like they won 14 division titles. They won one World Series title. Well, you only think that's bad because of what the Yankees were able to do. So remove what the Yankees did. And then think about the Braves. And it's pretty good. It's hard to win a World Series. But then you have a team winning three in a row, four out of five, or whatever they did. And all of a sudden, uh, no, man, one's not so good anymore. So I get the sentiment both ways. But no, two in 20 years is winning a, a title every decade on average is still pretty good. And they're there every year. It's not like they win one and then collapse. Like, let's use another baseball analogy, like the Marlins used to do. They'd win a World Series, total collapse. Build, build, build. Win a World Series, totally collapse. That's not Ohio State. Let's go with Austin on Twitter. In 2016, Tennessee went 5-0. They beat Florida and Georgia. (laughs) Went on to almost beat A&M. Had six turnovers. After that, straight downhill. In your opinion, what went wrong? How do you beat Florida and Georgia and not go to Atlanta? Uh, I think we talked about this about a month ago, but it's the most fascinating. If I could do a documentary on one team, if I could get everyone on the record, and I could have the layers totally peeled back, curtain open. You could see everything about the team. 2016 Tennessee, that's the one I want. I want to see that one. That that was so fascinating. I was there for all those games. And I was there for that Georgia game. I told that story about a month ago. I ended up in their locker room because I was wearing an orange polo that day. I was on the field covering the game. And it was such a wild scene. But how do you do it? You do it because you have about – three months worth of gas in a tank that requires four months. That's how, I mean, imagine you're cruising along the interstate, everything feels great. And then you run out of gas. What happens? Well, you come to a stop. That's what Tennessee did. They had enough gas to get through Georgia, to get through Florida. And then they ran out of gas. And not only did they lose in college station, they got obliterated by Alabama. They lost to South Carolina. And so, yeah, when you run out of gas, when you run out of gas, someone on a scooter, can fly past you. That's kind of what Tennessee ended up doing that year. Good stuff. All right, that's going to wrap us up for this week. There may be some spillover. I think there are a couple that I didn't get to. If I didn't get to them, it's not that I'm ignoring them. I pull a couple of questions out sometimes to use on Late Kick Live, and sometimes I'll pull one out 
like a John Swafford ACC question. I saw one in here. That's something I'm working on for something in the future. So I leave it out. And sometimes I correspond with you guys and I tell you, hey, don't be mad. I'm not answering because of this. But even if I don't, I see every one of them. So I appreciate it. Keep submitting them. And we are going to do this every Wednesday, obviously. So give us those five-star reviews. I don't beg, but I'm just pretend I'm begging. Do what you would do if I were begging. But don't make me beg. Five-star reviews and the podcast reviews, those are really, really great. We, we really appreciate those. We do Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel every Thursday night and Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. You can also follow me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Some of you have. That's another, just a simple request, a follow on Twitter. That's all I ask, at Late Kick Josh. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again same time next week. CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.